Hi there and welcome to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll talk to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. Some of the names you'll know and some of them you've probably never heard of, but they've all got great stories to tell. I'm not Andrew Denton and I'm not Michael Parkinson, but I do enjoy talking to interesting media people about where they've been and where they're going next. My guest today is Andrew Moore from ABC Grandstand. Andrew's a very well-known voice in the radio industry, having spent the best part of 30 years primarily as a sports broadcaster on commercial radio stations 2UE, 2GB and 2SM in Sydney and now ABC Grandstand. We chat about his career, his family and how it's changed him, Alan Jones, social media and the Apple Gates. More on that later. I hope you enjoy my chat with Andrew Moore from ABC Grandstand. Is that you, Andrew? It is. Is that you, Ralph? Now, can you tell me where that actually originated from? Because that's been an industry joke for quite a long time and I've passed it on to every (laughs) radio station that I've worked at and that's a few now over the past 20-odd years. Yeah, there'll be a lot of people who have used that or who uh, remember it well. Now, that came back to an old lady named Mary who used to phone the continuous call team back in the late 80s, early 90s and used to start off every time with, is that you, Ray? So, bless the cotton socks. So, yes, it became quite the thing. Is that you, Ralph? A lot of people wouldn't even know the origin of it, but I'm glad we've got that out from the, the outset. The secret has been let out of the bag for those that don't actually know it. I'm 46. I still use it frequently. Another thing that you created over the years was the Applegate family, the famous <laughs> Applegate family. Not to mention the Applegates. <laughs> and what was that exactly? Because now sports news is... 30 to 60 seconds in a, in a news bulletin. Uh, back in the day, you had to fill three or four minutes with yeah. carts and all kinds of different That's reel-to-reel right. tape and all that kind of malarkey. Especially uh, on weekends, you used to have long, long bulletins that sometimes go up to five minutes. So you'd invariably run a voicer from BBC or somewhere overseas and it became a running thing. We shouldn't be admitting all this, Ralphie, but it became a running thing that uh, one of them, you'd establish a name, an Applegate or if it was a foreign correspondent about a Formula One Grand Prix or something, it would become Applegate. But it might be Neil Diamond Applegate or Jimmy Barnes Applegate or something along those lines that everyone started to use it. In fact, I think they still do. And you started that at 2UE and then obviously you brought it over to 2GB when you came over to 2GB. At least I could do. <laughs> the first time. And I, I remember hearing it and then I questioned you about it because it was Cynthia... Uh, Applegate, and then it was Marcia Applegate, and I just wondered, geez, they were all Applegates. Where did that come Very from? Very sporting family, the Applegates, and they spread their wings far and wide. But that's basically how we started that to, I think, amuse ourselves. <laughs> right. Well, let's now get on track and talk about you and your career. Uh, you've just completed your first rugby league season with ABC Grandstand. As someone who has loved sport all of their lives and been involved in sports broadcasting, it must be a bit of a surreal feeling to go to the national broadcaster given its esteemed history? Well, probably like you, probably like so many, I grew up listening to ABC Sport. It was the the one that you could always trust and Jim Maxwell to me is one of the most trusted voices on the planet. I love listening to Jimmy. As soon as he talks, I'm drawn in. But, you know, I grew up listening to Alan Marks. 
uh, on the radio and so many of their John O'Reilly's and their, the great commentators of the past up to most recently David Morrow and Peter Wilkins and these guys. But with the cricket, Jimmy Maxwell and Alan McGilvray, who had the great pleasure of meeting when I was first starting out in the industry in the, the mid to late 1980s. Um, and to me, they've always covered sport better, better than anybody else. They've covered more sport than anybody else. Um, so to me, it was a great honour to come over to the ABC and, and cover sport because it is that grandstand moniker means something to me. And I think um, those who work there still have a lot to live up to um, from the, the standards that have been set for generations. What's it like slotting into a lineup there alongside someone like a Jim Maxwell, who is an Australian broadcasting icon when it comes to sport? It's fun. You know, I sit, he, he and I sit opposite each other in the office. We're not always there at the same time, but when we are, it's great catching up with him. And, you know, um, he's travelling around at the moment covering the, the summer of cricket, uh, but he's been to another Ashes series. He's just got so much experience, but I love talking to him about things at the ABC. Um, the unfortunate fact that the ABC t- television doesn't cover too much sport these days. We're covering the, a- the W League. Um, but he used to do a lot of rugby union on ABC television and um, almost every time I sit down and chat with Jimmy, it's a bit of a history lesson about the place. You know, he's been there 42 years, uh, so that's no, great fun, yeah. How did it get to that point? Obviously, you were at 2GB for this time around, I think, 13 years or something like that. Was it time for a change? I think um, the opportunity was there, but also I did need a change. I'd been there a long time. The last two or three years... I just hadn't enjoyed it. I hadn't enjoyed calling football. I'd enjoyed doing my own program, but it was very early in the morning. The hours were taxing. But in terms of the footy, I'd I'd lost enjoyment for it. Um, And I was really going through a process last year of working out whether I still wanted to do it or not, to be perfectly honest. Um, And then I started speaking with another network about going there. I was at the end of a five-year contract at 2GB, and I wasn't enjoying that place anymore. Um, And I ended up approaching the ABC knowing that – place had come available, saying, is there is there any sort of match that can be made here? And thankfully, Michael Mason, the head of ABC Radio, got back to me that day and um, and conversation started then. So I think it came down to I really needed a change and I really needed to work out whether I still love doing footy, um, which thankfully this year I have. Um, I've, I've recaptured that love for it, which had, had uh, gone away to a large extent in the last two or three years. So it was more the opportunity of... Not so much the heading up. I'm, I'm not that sort of. I'm not driven in that that regard. But I, I think the opportunity to to make the ABC Rugby League coverage matter again, because the ratings had certainly dropped away in the last few years, and you know they'd had some issues with with Dave Morrow and, and Warren Ryan and so on, rightly or wrongly. Uh, so I think the chance to get the ABC back on track meant a lot to me. And that when that opportunity came up, I grabbed it with with both hands. Working with someone like Matthew Elliott who is new to the broadcasting game, obviously well-known in rugby league circles and probably well-respected in the regards that he has a lot to say in terms of how he interprets the game. Um, how was that bringing someone like him along, knowing full well that he was inexperienced as a broadcaster? Do you know what? Working with Matt this year was one of the, has been one of the great joys of my career. He has no idea what he's doing in terms of radio. By the end of the year, he obviously had a lot more than at the start of the year, but he's very open that he doesn't know what he's doing. And I think in some ways that's an appeal. He almost breaks every radio rule you've ever been taught or that you've ever taught other people. And once 
I sort of relaxed into that and went for the ride. It was a really fun ride, and I, I hope I work with Matty for years to come because he's he's very insightful. He's very caring about rugby league players and about the sport. Um, obviously about coaches as well, but he's quick witted. He's pleasantly weird. I'd, I'd describe him as you know. He's he's a bit. He's way out there. Uh, I love it. I, I really have loved working with him, and he he's been great fun. And I, I think I think by the year's end. People who have listened to him a fair bit would say he's doing a really good job. How hard is it to get somebody to that level, like in terms of, as you say, not having experience, but then all of a sudden just listening to it purely from a a listening point of view, it seemed to gel, like it seemed that he could come in on the in-jokes with you and then be serious when the, the time needed to be serious. You know, it was a bit rough around the edges, like you said, but... It might have taken a whole lot longer than it actually did to come together. Yeah, I think, A, we get along really well. We had not had much to do with each other before the 2015 NRL season, um, apart from me as a broadcaster and he as a coach in the past. But he and I clicked pretty early on and we really enjoyed each other's company. When we were away, we'd, you know, we'd have a good time. So I think that, that makes a difference. I'm pretty easy going. I, I let him develop his role. He started off on the sideline for games. And then when he came up into the box for, for games, I thought he started to, to flourish. And um, I think I think the fact he's a little rough around the edges works in his favour to a point. I, I think listeners are almost sympathetic to that and enjoy that aspect of him and the more comfortable he gets with it, I, I still want him to be a little bit frayed around the edges because that gives him a, a real common touch, I think. But his insight to the game is clear and I, I just think the more he does it, he'll end up being one of the really great co-commentators I've ever worked with. Now, was it always radio for you? Was that always the number one goal as a kid? Was that what you wanted to do in life? Since the age I can remember. I used to apparently sit in front, the kids won't know what I'm talking about here, in front of a turntable and watch the record go around because I'd have introduced the song. I'd walk around the house pretending I was John Laws. This would be back in the late 70s, you know, very early 80s. My whole life was a radio show, so... I invested everything mentally and emotionally into the fact that I'd do radio. I don't know what I would have done had it not come about in the you know when I left school in 1986 because that's all I ever wanted to do. And it was sport also? It was. Yeah, it wasn't just sport, but certainly I'd always seen myself calling footy and cricket and doing shows sports-related in studios. It's all I could ever picture. And when the chance came up in 1984 to do, when I was in year 10, to do work experience at uh, Rugby League Week, 2GB and 2UE back then, uh, I knew that I had to do it. It's come hell or high water, that's what I was going to do. That's all I cared about. And who were those early influences that made you want to call rugby league or call cricket or just be part of the sports broadcasting landscape in terms of radio? I think I think there are a few. Um, Alan McGilvray in cricket, just, again, like Jim Maxwell, these days and for the last several decades, I could listen to Alan McGilvray constantly, just a legend. Um, Dennis Cometti would be another one I'd have high up there and I had the great joy of working with Dennis for eight years during career coverage at TUE back in the 80s and 90s. But people like that drove me. Frank Hyde, who I met on my first day's work experience at TUE in, in the mid-1980s, you know, you just grow up listening to these people. You just want to, You just want to do what they do. You can't do it. You can't replicate the way they do it or you can't probably do it as well as they do it, but you just want to do what they do. I mean, they 
to me, even now, we're spoiled, especially if you love sport, by what you can watch on pay television and even free-to-air for that matter. But to me, still, I love going to bed at night listening to the Ashes on the radio. I love listening to the radio sport in the car. Uh, to me, there is that something special about being able to tell the story, about being able to convey the excitement to people who can't see what you're seeing. Um, that's still magical to me now. What advice did you get from those people in the early days? Because, to be honest... There's not many jobs out there. I mean, you think about if you want to go into any other profession, if you want to be a real estate agent, there are a dime a dozen. If you want to be even a, a doctor, obviously you have to study hard to do that, but there's a whole heap of people out there. There'd be a limited amount of jobs. We're talking probably less than 1% of the population can actually mm. get into sports broadcasting. So it's not like it's a job that you can just get. Well, it's funny you mention that because... Having run into Frank Hyde that day, uh, he said, what do you want to do, young fella? And I said, Mr Hyde, I want to do what you do. I want to call rugby league. He said, think about something else, son. I said, why? He said, because you're more chance statistically of becoming a brain surgeon. And really, there are more brain surgeons than there are rugby league commentators. So uh, the job not quite as, as difficult as what the brain surgeons have to deal with. And to his credit and to my, I'll remember this till the day I dropped dead, he did phone me after I started calling football and said, I'm glad he didn't get into medicine. Um, <laughs> but that is how tough it is. There aren't many out there, and I think there are less and less coming through now than there probably were 20 years ago. Why is that? I don't know. Um, there used to be, I mean, you remember, Ralphie, when we worked together in the, in the 90s, that you'd be inundated almost daily with people wanting to work in broadcasting and to call footy or to call sport, wanting advice or wanting to come in and have a look and, or come in and have a chat. Barely happens these days. So whether people... I think there's generational change. Young people now don't want to just sit and, and learn for three or four years. They want to do that, you know. They want I was going to gonna say the, ex else. the expectation to be the general manager from day one is Correct. pretty much high amongst the younger generation. Um, <laughs> you definitely it's see just the way that. it is. Yeah, you definitely see that. So I'm not sure. I mean, when I was a kid, and I know a lot of other footy comments, you'd listen to John Tapp about racing or Ray Warren. These people I have such great respect for, they spent hours practising. I spent hours practising embarrassing myself at home in front of a video with my door shut, calling game after game after game, no matter what the sport was, before you're even a hope of getting on air to do it. So by the time you do get the opportunity, you're at least confident that you th at least you think you know what you're doing. But I've seen a few cases where people haven't done that hard yakker and that practice and they get an opportunity and they freeze. What got you to that point where you were able to, to do it? That Was it all of that um, hard work from, I guess, from when you were like a young kid to the time that you got the opportunity, you knew that you were ready? I think so. I mean, you, you, I've always had a bit of self-doubt about things. So you, when I was given the opportunity to call footy for the first time in 1994, I think it was, I was scared. I, I thought I could do it. But whether I could do it to a standard where people want to listen to it outside of, you know, me and my family, you really go through some, some self-doubt. But I think... I and think what, what, what age are you there at that 94, stage? 25. Okay. I'd done some cricket at that point for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, so calling live sport didn't frighten me necessarily. But to me, when I, I did my first league game, I did a couple of sevens games. But my first league game was Penrith and Cronulla at, at Shark Park or whatever it was called back then. Was that the game that Phil Gould got sent, sent off? Sent off? Yeah, that's right. Sutherland, it was. It was. I was there. It was, it was raining as well. It was. Yeah. But um, to me, that was that was the, the moment that I was going to define my career or not. I was going to learn if all that 
previous 10 or 15 years of calling games into a tape had been worth it. To me, it came down to that that one night. It's a lot of pressure to put on yourself, but that's how I felt about it. Once I started to get some calls saying, you did all right, you did all right, it was the greatest relief ever. So it went from, was that before or after the rugby test? Because right, that, was a, that was a defining moment for you as well, like in terms of, okay, you'd done a couple of years with the cricket broadcasting. I think 92 World Cup was the start of yes, it for it you. Yeah. And then along came this opportunity. I think was Vossi in the number two seat and then went to nine and then you were third yes. caller? Yes, the, the way, because myself and Andrew Voss both worked at TUE back then. So I had the cricket gig through the summer. Vossi did, was the sort of backup caller in the winter and that certainly kept us both happy doing what at that time we wanted to do. But when Vossi went to nine, I was elevated in terms of the, the league stuff. So that rugby test was the one Jeff Wilson uh, was tackled by George Gregan famously Correct. in the southwestern corner to save the test for the Wallabies. So within was, a week it was, of each it was, other, it was unusually. It was a it was a midweek test from memory. I think it might have even been played on a like a Wednesday night, which was quite strange. I think back then. Well, you're right, well, you're right because Stan Zamanik threw to me and took over at the finish of the game. Uh, those who remember the, the late great Stan Zamanik in the TUE days, so you're probably right. It all happened within a week of each other. I can't honestly remember which came first, but. The rugby was exciting for me, um, and I call that game with Ross Reynolds. But the the league game to me was the defining moment, whether this is what I could pursue or not. I guess you'd had a lot of grounding going back even further from that work experience days through the 2UE newsroom, was it, back then? Mm. Yeah, I started as a cadet when I was 17 um, at 2UE, straight out of school, and God bless John Brennan for deciding to hire me. Breno was the... uh, the sports director and then became program director uh, famously at TUE and it was a great time to be there. It was a, the most fun time you could have in radio. It was when there were still many characters around. The journos would wear the hats, have the typewriters, have the cigarette out the side of their mouth, you know. It was, they were characters. They, a lot of the announcers were, were great characters. It wasn't run purely about the dollar as it, as it is these days as, as businesses go. So it was a really wonderful time to come to come through. But yeah, I did that and I started doing the stats for the cricket just out of year 12, the first year two, you did cricket in 86, 87. Um, the Ashes series between Australia and England, which England dominated. So to do that and do the cadetship through the TUE newsroom was a, it was a hell of a good grounding. How much did you have to do with that coverage? You obviously learn a lot looking at broadcasters like Dennis Cometti, who mm. was part of that. And there was Henry Pete, Blofeld. Yeah, Henry Blofeld. Richie and there Benner. was. You know, former Australian cricket captains Ian Chappell was part of that. Yeah, that you must have just been like a kid in a candy store, just having to front up to work every day. And here you're surrounded by all of these legends who are legends in sport, but also they've became, uh, well, from the broadcasting sense, guys that you'd probably looked up to and, and listened to for many years previously. It was so exciting. I remember the first flight. My HSC had, exams had finished two or three days before we flew to Brisbane. For the first test, and I'd never flown on my own before. I was scared. I was a nervous little shy kid. And in the end, for some reason, I got upgraded and I was sat next to Jeannie Little on the plane who <laughs> kept me entertained for the, for the next hour. But I'll tell you something I'll never forget because I was in awe of these people like Richie Benno and Tony Gregg and Ian Chaplin, um, uh, Dougie Walters and all these guys we're working with. Um, and the first, the morning of the first test, I went down to the, it was the Park Royal in Brisbane and I went down to have breakfast. I didn't know anybody. I'd met our commentators once or twice, but 
was too shy to go up to any of them. So I've gone to the buffet table, got my breakfast, sat down, and the person who came and sat down next to me to keep me company was Richie Benno. Wow. He could have spoken to anybody that day, but he sat down next to me and and uh, that's something obviously you'd never forget and it sums up the sort of bloke he was and he didn't care what people did for a living or he treated everyone well. He was a class act, Richie Benner, and um, is sorely missed and will continue to be. But the opportunity to work with them, I think I was accepted as a scorer. We were, did America's Cup Challenge. It was a big one-day tournament in Perth. We were there for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And... Um, and I said, it was Australia, West Indies, Pakistan and England. And I said to Ciappelli on the first day, I said, picture the two outsiders get to the final of this, Pakistan and England. And, of course, they did. So yes. I won him over. And there was a test in Perth where the scoreboard had something wrong. I can't remember what it was. And I stuck with my guns for like four hours until myself and Max Kruger from Channel 9 convinced the official scorers they were wrong. So Blowers and Henry Blofeld and Dennis Cometti stuck by me that day and that sort of was how I got one over and they, they earned their trust and respect. But every day working with those guys was a treat. It was fun. It was crazy. What did you learn from them um, moving forward in, in your career? What little things that they may have passed on to you that you picked up that's always stuck with you that you perhaps might pass on to the next generation of um, people looking to get into sports broadcasting? Oh, various things. I think Dennis Cometti taught me preparation. Um, he was as good as it gets. He still is as good as it gets when it comes to sporting commentary, but he was prepared. He worked hard to be good. He didn't have a natural love for some of the sports he covered. He has a very natural love for AFL, and that shows to this day. Didn't have quite the natural love for cricket despite being so darn good at it, but he worked very hard at preparing for that. He worked extremely hard at preparing for his swimming assignments at various Summer Olympic Games. And he once said to me, the best thing I was taught was to learn a different word before you broadcast every day and try and use that word to keep increasing your vocabulary. And that's something I don't always remember to do, but often I do remember to do it. I think someone like Henry Blofeld taught you the art of entertainment. Um, I think if you were marking him on accuracy, you might give him a 4 out of 10 where you'd give Dennis Committee a 10 out of 10. But in terms of learning how to entertain people and tell a story about what it's like to be at the cricket that day, Blowers is a 10 out of 10 every time. So I think there are different things you can learn off these guys. Tony Gregg was, again, taught me about enthusiasm, uh, always come prepared. Richie Benno taught me that when your boss says to do something, do it. Everyone wants to whinge. You know, Breno might ring up and say, you guys aren't giving the score near enough. Get on with it. You're driving me nuts in here. And everyone would blew about it. And Richie would say, well, that's what the boss wants. Give it to him. If he tells you to do the score 10 times in an over, give it 10 times in an over. So I don't know. You pick up these various things. Everyone's got their own little styles, but you probably pick up things subconsciously from the others without even realising it. It's one of those things that people think that, it's the dream job, which it is, to call sport. There's no doubt about that, that you're bringing the action to people wherever they are, wherever they may be listening. But you're right, the preparation that goes into it is probably, well, people in the general public really don't care about it, but in, in terms for you to prepare for a rugby league game, it's probably second nature these days, but you still have to learn all of the players' names, you have to know their positions, perhaps, you know, a little bit of background just to keep that entertainment flow going. And I guess it's with, the same with any sport. If you're calling soccer or rugby union or tennis or golf or whatever the case may be, there's still probably hours of preparation time that goes into it before you the on-air light goes on. 
guess so. In terms of rugby league these days, most of my preparation would revolve around the show as opposed to the game itself. But even even to this day, I'll write notes about every player that's playing in the three or four games we do, whatever, for the weekend. And even if I never refer to them, I find I remember things if I write them down. So I may never look at them, but there'll be something in there that sticks in my head, whether it's where they come from or their junior club or their age or how long, you know, how many clubs they've been with, whatever the case may be. So that's my safety blanket, I think, my, my little comfort blanket to have those notes there with me at every game. Uh, but the rest is keeping up with the news. I mean, I expect my colleagues to be across what's going on, but to me it's my responsibility to to know the little things that have been happening through every week when it comes to to rugby league, whatever sport you're doing. Um, so there is that preparation, but let's face it, it's, it's a pretty fun thing to prepare for, isn't it? You um, you would have noticed the change in how the news cycle has, has changed. I mean, back in the day it was, okay, well, if a story was broken in the newspaper, it would then get followed up by radio or even people, radio people would go out and break stories. They'd have contacts with police or mm. whatever the, the case may be. Now with Twitter and with Facebook and with uh, websites, it's ongoing all of the time, whereas perhaps back in the day you would have relied on a newspaper article that you read in the morning or listened to a radio broadcast um, before it was, you know, proven factually correct or you'd ring somebody up. Now the pace just seems to be so much quicker on everything. It is. I mean, I think the art of journalism isn't what it used to be. It's such a different industry now. No one has a scoop anymore. It's all um, everything's everything's fed to you by press release or by media managers and so on. But, you know, when I came through, when I first started radio back in that old TUE newsroom, you had some of the best storytellers you'll ever hear, David Allender, Rob Kinney, to name just two. And, and they, you know, old-style journos like Normie Lipson, The Angry Ant, um, Stevie Barrett, who's still around to this day, and these guys would be out there. They'd be at stories before police would be. They'd have their ears to the scanner. They would have contacts in the underworld and the criminal world, and they would know when something's going down. And that used to be – there used to be a wonderful show on TUE way back when on, the, um, on, on a Saturday or Sunday morning, and it started with Sydney while you were asleep. And it was David Allender and Rob Kinney and these crime reporters out showing you what happened in the Sydney streets the night before. So they'd be out with the fireys, they'd be out with the ambos and they'd be out with the police and they'd be at every incident that happened and, and would bring you a feel of, of what was happening in that city that night. Uh, but even when it came to sport, you used your contacts. I mean, you and I, Ralph, we used to have these big fat contact books now. Everything's in a phone these days. And it, we used to have to, if you wanted to speak to Steve Waugh, the captain of Australia, who was playing in India, you, rang, you tried to find his hotel room or his hotel and rang reception and asked to be put through. Uh, and they'd say yes or no. But you had a much better uh, communication with sports people now uh, than than you do now because they're so protected by media managers. Do you think that's a shame? Big time. Big time, yeah. I'm convinced that players of all sports don't even get asked to do media engagements half the time because the media manager wants to be their mate. Um, So I definitely think it's a shame, yeah, for sure. And I guess the same goes for politicians when you look at how things are, as you said, stage managed for media conferences. It's like, well, if they don't want to do it, they won't do anything. So you don't really get to know the people anymore. You only get to know them through the 10-second soundbite that you see on the TV or you hear on the, the radio. And I think 
They're so boring. It it is, and everybody's got the same story, and there you 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 can you can write it differently. I mean, the words might be different around the audio grab, but essentially everybody's got the same story, and it's it's from a listening and from a viewing point of view, it it it's just boring. Well, when I was doing current affairs shows at Two GB, I'd I'd often dread the pol- political interview. Um, the the one exception I'd say would be Barry O'Farrell. Uh, I really liked him when he was opposition leader. I really liked him when he was premier, and I really like him now. But he had something to say. He, to me, he wasn't as scripted as everybody else. So I always enjoyed chatting to Barry, whether he made you laugh or cry, or you know, want to want to headbutt the wall or not. Uh, but the rest, Tony Abbott, when he before he was opposition leader, he was fabulous media talent because he'd shoot from the hip, and that was pretty much his job uh, with the coalition back then. But it did change when he became opposition leader, and certainly when he became prime minister. It was nowhere near the Tony Abbott, the natural Tony Abbott that many of us had grown to love before then in terms of um, speaking to the media. But you're right, they're so, it just goes across all spectrums, I think. Everyone is so afraid to say anything that might draw them attention beyond, beyond that interview that no one says anything. And when they do, we hand them down. Well, and that's the other thing, I guess. That's the ugly side of social media. Every given, every uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry a voice out there to express their opinion. Whereas before, you wouldn't have known what they had to say. But I seem to th- think that there's a heightened uh, currency or or uh, importance put on what social media says. When you know, when we're at fair dinkum, Doris from Blacktown, she's not on Twitter. She's no. not on Facebook, uh, but she's yeah. ringing open line shows. Well, Doris. yeah, e- exactly. But I, I kind of think that the the trend to be popular on social media seems to be more important than getting a genuine message across. Look, Ralphie, this has been my first twelve months on social media. I had to join Twitter when I joined the ABC. I'm glad I have. I've got a lot of value out of it. But you read so much crap, so much self promoting nonsense, not just from politicians, from everybody. Um, so for all of the, the good nuggets you can find, I reckon if I was to put a percentage on it, I'd say 10% is useful to me, 90% is absolute garbage on social media. And I don't know whether that's just Twitter. I don't know whether it's the same on Facebook and Instagram and whatever else, but it has a great value because of it's the important role it plays. But, again, if you read comments on there from a politician or a businessman or a sports person, it's, it's mundane to say the very least. So you're a novice on social media. Yes. Have there been many haters? For me? Yeah. On social media? Um, had to block any? I've had to block a few, but I don't like criticism. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not as many as I expected, to be perfectly honest. A lot of people, when I moved to the ABC from where I came from, it's diametrically opposed probably politically in, in some areas, but a few people were saying, how dare you leave for, just for the money? And I felt like saying... Have a look, champion. It's nothing to do, nothing to do with money, unless unless you like working for a bit less. Money had nothing to do with it, but that's what people attack me for. But no, nah, not not too bad, really. Well, that's so far. Well, I guess that's a positive experience, and I guess the way that you treat it, having been slow to embrace it, um, very slow. Well, yeah, it's not it's not only that, but I, I guess you'd sort of come in there with a sort of a blase attitude. If somebody wants to attack you, well. So what? Well, you're kind of used to it. I mean, you know, every other show I've done, you, you take emails from people and depending on what show it is, you might get a 100 different ones an hour. And people aren't shy. The keyboard cowboys, they don't care. If they disagree with you, they'll absolutely hammer you. So 
um, you learn to shrug all that stuff off, I think, over time. So maybe that's the same way with social media. Do you think the giving the public a greater voice is that detrimental or how do you, how, how do you view it? Oh, I think giving the public a greater voice is a wonderful thing. But the problem is the people that tend to use that voice are the keyboard cowboys. There are so many who, I mean, again, you just look at Twitter and it's the same people every day who write the same crap every day. And these are people just wanting their voice to be heard and they write vindictive things. Um, there are a lot of cranky people out there, you know, who I've learned I just ignore them or don't follow them anymore. Not that they've said anything personally to me, but just it seems to be an avenue for narcs. And there, it frightens me how many narcs there are. There are a lot out there. There are a lot of narcs. People, you know, there are people like Mike Carlton that just seem to, and I, I loved working with Mike Carlton when I did for a little while at TUE. But I look at Mike now, who's someone I've always respected, and he just seems a cranky old man hanging out to give it to somebody, to pick on something. Oh, what a miserable existence that is. And they must be on it 20 hours a day. It's not my, <laughs> that, that side of it's not my go. Yeah. You had a great relationship with Alan Jones that spread back to your first experience at TUE. Was he somebody else that had a, a great influence on you? Um, uh, it, it's 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 funny that there's been a lot of people over the years that have commented to me about your and Alan's relationship where you'd get on to talk about sport, but essentially they had no interest in sport, but they enjoyed listening to you and Alan talk. Um, it's a it's an on air relationship that um, has developed it over you know thirty odd years, and he has a, an enormous respect for you. Do you think he could get some? Great satisfaction about the fact that he may have brought you a lot, uh, brought you along. It's funny; people won't believe this. Certainly, he's detracted. I don't think his ego is directed in that particular area. I think, I think he loved seeing me or anyone he spent time with develop, um, whether that's as a person or professionally. Um, but I loved working with Alan. It was a challenge every day: a) whether you'd get a word in over the top of him, b) and b) what he'd bring up. Uh, but and whether you'd get ten seconds or five minutes, you never knew. I love I love that about him. But he was always encouraging, um, and it was because of him that I got to have the honour of filling in for him for three or four years there. And his advice to me was, "Don't try and be me. Just be yourself." He said, "You'll think you know what you're talking about, but the listeners will tell you what's important to them." So, but he said, "I'll say this directly." He said, "Don't talk shit." and listen to what the listeners say. That's what's important, not whatever you think is. They'll tell you what's important. And that's really been his attitude. So whether people agree or disagree with whatever view he, he takes, he passionately believes in that view because people have expressed it and explained it to him. Um, but he's uh, he, when he left TUE, he had that famous interview with Jamie Packer and they started with the let we pick and stick. Yeah. And to me, especially the, the the friend that Jones was in the last 12 or 18 months that I was at GB, I finally understood exactly what that meant, and that's what he is. He's a picker and sticker, and I'll always admire him. You talk about research. There's nobody better when it comes to that. Oh, he's a freak. He will have an interview with a politician or anybody, and he'll go in there with notes that I don't know how many pages. It can be 150 pages sitting in front of him. Now, this is stuff that he's either he's dictated into his old-fashioned dictaphone, um, but stuff he has either done himself or read through. And he'll know exactly where to go through the course of an interview and how often does he catch politicians out with a fact or figure that he's got 
and they don't have. He's ridiculously well-researched. He'll be up to two in the morning doing it and then wake up again at four to come in and do the show. Uh, I've never met anyone like that. I, I, you keep thinking he'll slow down, but he's on a old he's now 70 or something. He, no, no signs of it at all. And he's roundly criticised for whatever reason. But there's nobody in this country that is as well-versed in sport, politics, the arts, yeah. you name it, any subject. I, I don't think there's a more rounded person over the last 30 years that have, have dominated radio, which he has. Yeah. It's because he's got knowledge in all of these different areas. And it's because he's got a passion in these areas. Look, he and I disagreed on sport a lot, um, and I'm sure we would about politics or about his views on other things, but his views aren't like mine or yours probably. They're not just borne out by a few conversations you've heard or what you saw in the news last night. He'll go and research and get the report into, you know, whatever and go through it and make notes and get his staff to follow up this, that and the other. So his view, whether you ultimately agree with it or vehemently disagree with it, it has come through what he's read and followed up and, and researched. But he's got this passion for he's got his passion for his craft, which is radio, but he's also got the passion for the arts. And he, but he puts his money where his mouth is. He helps young singers out. He helps young actors out. He helps young athletes out. If they're struggling to, to get a go and he finds out about it and he believes in them, he'll do whatever it takes. It's unbelievable. He'll fly anywhere for anybody that he believes in and do anything for them. There's no one like him, mate, I'm telling you. He doesn't get a lot of credit for that because a lot of it is done off his own bat in private. And I guess an, an instance that I can sort of recall from a personal point of view is that, you know, our friend Glenn Wheeler, who yeah. unfortunately earlier this year had a, a terrible accident. Alan's been to see Glenn a number of times without fun or fanfare where there's other people in the industry that I, I kind of question their motives a little bit, but it's just the way he is. I'll tell you a story, Ralphie. He, uh, the, the late... Terry Jenner was a former Australian league spin bowler and the mentor of Shane Warne until he passed a few years ago. And TJ spent time in jail for fraud back in the late 70s. And TJ, when I was covering cricket way back, TJ was working for the ABC in Adelaide and he told me over a few beers one night, he said, you're working at TUE, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, Alan Jones. I said, yes. He said, please say good day to him for me. I said, how do you know Jonesy? He said, when I was doing time in jail, I said, my jail was about an hour out of the city of Adelaide. I said, once every month or two months, I can't remember quite which. I said, without fail, Alan Jones, who I'd never met, would turn up to visit me and see how I'm going. Do I need anything? Can I contact anyone for you? So I asked Alan about that. I said, Terry Jenner said to say good day to you. He said, oh, where did you run into tea, Jenner? mentioned. I said, did you go and see him in jail? He said, actually, I did. Do you want to know why? I said, Sure. He said, I was at the SCG that day that Jon Snow hit Terry Jenner in the head. It was a famous incident that nearly led to a ride at the SCG in an, in an Ashes Test match. And Terry Jenner went down the days before helmets and could, didn't know his own name but mm. didn't want to go off. They had to really shove him off the field. And Jonesy was watching that at the SCG and thought, anyone who the baggy green cap means so much to must have something. And he followed him very closely since. And purely because of the respect he gained for Terry Jenner in that moment, he decided that he'd go and visit him and make sure he was okay. He's done so many things like that to so many people over the years. You'll never hear about that. There's a million of them that I don't know about and I've, I've known him for 30 years. But I can tell you this, when I had my 
Janine and I had our two bubs. The first box of flowers to arrive at the hospital both times was him. And no surprise to anybody. Speaking of the family, how has that changed you <laughs> in, in your life? Uh, huge. Huge. Oh, you know, you know me, Ralphie, from before then. But I think, I think when um, Janine and I started to get serious, my life changed then, in fairness. Um, and she was a really good stabiliser for me. Uh, but then having the kids, mate, you're, you're going through this now with, with Holly. The, the best, they're the best thing in the world. And blokes worry so much about how your life will change when you have kids and you concentrate on things you're going to miss out on. The truth, you don't miss any of that stuff. You've done all your, you know, your partying as a single guy and stay out all night Friday night, Saturday night, you more than most of my dad. <laughs> but your focus changes to this most amazing thing. I mean, they're... Archie's nearly 10, Eliza's uh, nearly 9, Eliza's just turned 7. It goes like that in the blink of an eye and it's the best thing in the world. That is my main focus forevermore. How did it change you as a broadcaster? Because there was a whole period there where sport was the thing that you were well known for and you'd focused on and you'd improved your craft over many years and you'd called a lot of sporting events at at different venues and, and so forth. But... There was an opportunity there to sort of become a more rounded broadcaster and become across a current affairs and and fill in for for people on different shows. Having a family, did that change the way that you addressed certain issues? Like when you were when you were well, well, I guess you'd probably were put in a, a a sporting basket and they weren't willing to give you an opportunity because, well, you were just a single guy without kids, automatically that gives you another, I guess, focus. Probably brings you back to how the general public's looking at most issues on a day-to-day basis through life, whether it comes to expense, whether it beca- whether it, um, it's about the education system, whether it's how much petrol costs. I think, I think your focus is different because you do think about the family, you think about the family budget, you think about mortgage repayments, you think you worry more about what the RBA is going to do every couple of months. Um, so I think it, I think you can't help but change your focus on things. Was uh, that frustrating for you that beforehand but now probably looking back on it, it's probably a good thing that they didn't let you off the leash earlier? Drove me nuts. Well, I was told once directly that, that the reason you're not filling in for these people is because you're a single bloke with no kids, which I find to be outrageous. So, you know, James is a single bloke with no kids. I don't think that's necessary to do a good show or to be a good broadcaster or to have empathy for people. Um, so I thought and still think that was a BS line at the time. But with hindsight, no doubt a better broadcaster once having kids in terms of relating more to what other people are going through in life and what you're going through in life. Your, your friends... They don't change, but you, you grow a whole new friend base uh, when your kids start going to school and you go through shared experiences and you hear from them about what's affecting them. It's totally different to what you and I would discuss on the drink 15 years ago. You know, it's it's just a completely different focus about just about everything in life. Let's go back a, a couple of steps. 2GB the first time around. Yes. There were some Making great... me feel old. Well, there were there's some great people... Back then when, you know, you came in and you got signed um, to be the backup rugby league caller, which must have been huge for you when you're on a show that was so iconic. They were probably on their their last legs. But Hollywood and Zorbo, for me, 
growing up listening to the radio, they were the guys that I think probably influenced me in terms of wanting to pursue a career in, in radio because they brought so much excitement to the uh, the way that they, they called things. Mm. Um, they had on-air arguments which you kind of thought, are they staged, are they not staged? And they just had a great sense of, of, of theatre and entertainment to bring along to sports broadcasting. How was that to, to be a part of? And then, you know, you're coming along, you know, where um, I think Clive Robertson was, was, was <laughs> there at that stage and, and, and people that were, you know, John Pierce was on, on, on Night Times. And yes. we're talking about, you know, Brian Wilshire was there at that stage. He's still there. But um, I guess the point I'm, I'm getting to, what made that, change for you to to get to that point to where was it just again another another change that you wanted in your career to get there so that was about 94 95 we're talking about um I'd been at TUE for eight years it's the only job I'd ever known I was still young very inexperienced not very mature um and the couple of things had gone wrong that I thought I'd be messed around with and I made a bigger issue of it than I should have and in the end pretty much I stormed out I was not that day but I resigned and um, John Brennan and I didn't leave on the greatest of terms at that point, which which did upset me. I love Breno, I still love Breno, and he he's a huge reason why I've done anything in in this business. But the opportunity came up to work at Two G Birth Hollywood and Zorban like you. I love them. I listened to their first ever call of a game, St George and North Sydney, and um, and love the way they did it. It was different, but um, so I, I loved working with these two guys. But it was a bit different because I'd come from the the, the birth of the continuous call team which was highly structured, highly professional, used to count how many times you'd go around the grounds. It was the all the little things that really mattered to get things right and go from the bottom of the ratings to eventually the top of the ratings. So I did find Hollywood and Zorba in their last years to be lazy and that oh, I couldn't, I didn't know quite how to deal with that. Um, so I, I, as much as I loved it and we had some great lunches, um, there were parts of it I found frustrating. I, I think I learnt... I probably learnt more from the early days of TUE than I did for those opening year or two at 2GB, to be perfectly honest. And then to get thrust into the fact that you then had to take over the coverage because I think at the end of that season it may have been the fact that John Singleton actually bought 2GB um, and came in and um, things weren't going well ratings-wise and then all of a sudden... I think it might have been the fact that they went and called AFL for a season and then you came back and you were head of the coverage. No, in ninety in 96, it was still at Hollywood and Zorba and the ratings weren't very good. And at the end of the season, I can't quite remember the timing of it, but Hollywood, I used to sit in his office. That's where my yes. desk was. And he said to me, mate, we're stuffed. He said he's um, he's getting rid of all of us. I said, what are you talking about? He said, Singer is sacking all of us. He said, I hope you'll be all right, but we're all gone. I'm like, right. So I went home that night and instead I, th- I thought about it and thought, no, bugger that, I'm ready. So I put together this whole document, had it laser printed, was at Office Works or whatever the hell it was at 7 o'clock the next morning and hand-delivered a document to Singo's office and said, don't get rid of me, I, I know what I'm doing, let's go, I'll, I'll be your caller. And uh, he rang, he saw me, surprisingly, and uh, he rang Jack Gibson while I was there to ask him about me. He didn't tell him I was listening in on the phone. And thankfully, because I'd worked with Jack at TUE, he spoke highly of me. God bless him. Uh, and that's how I got the start there. But um, there was concerns there that I'd gone behind Hollywood and Zorba's back, which wasn't true. I'd been told that we were out the door. 
So I tried to resurrect that, and I was proud of the way I did it. And uh, we had a couple of years at it before they dumped us for for AFL. What was that like? Getting that call saying there's no longer going to be any rugby league on the on the radio station. Well, it had been coming. I sort of knew it was. I was suspected it was coming because the then CEO, who's not a person I rate very highly, and I think he's an idiot apart from anything else, because the emails he was having with the AFL and the Sydney Swans, the return emails were coming to my. Oh, no, uh, faxes, sorry. The return faxes were coming to my fax machine. So I was actually seeing... A lot of the younger listeners out there wouldn't understand what a fax fax machine... machine, That's right. So I was actually sort of part of this negotiation process to get rid of what I was trying to build up as it was going on for several months. So when the day came that they were ready to announce that they were doing AFL and brushing rugby league, I was probably a bit bitter about it, but I wasn't surprised at all, because I knew it was coming. During those period, I mentioned Clive Robertson earlier. It's another great on-air partnership that you <laughs> had. It's a similar thing. Clive, unlike Alan, wouldn't know a football from a piece of fruit and somehow you two managed to make it work. Do you know what? I loved working with Clive. I loved the challenge of working with Clive. It was very different to working with with Alan, I mean, you were competing against Clive's, often tongue-in-cheek, I've got to say, but his disdain for sport and sportsmen and women. But it became something I embraced rather than fought, and as a result, we got along famously. And um, I loved that time with him, and we went on to work together at 2SM a few years later, and uh, I miss working with Clive Roberts, and he's a unique character. Just about three weeks ago, I got a random email from him out of the blue. This might happen once every 18 months to two years and as I return the email it comes back that that account's closed. So, <laughs> but every now and then he sends me an email and it's lovely. I love hearing from him. He's very unique and I think one of our most entertaining broadcasters we've ever had. I remember when I used to be part of the rugby league coverage, whether it be producer or be answering the phones or whatever the case may be, every, might be a couple of weeks, Clive would ring in and he'd just say, can you just let Andrew know that I've just finished painting my house and I'm in the nude? Yes. Those calls continued long after we we uh, advanced in our careers. He had me, the first time I really did a current affairs show was filling in for him um, on his breakfast show at 2SM and he would often ring on air and say, I've just decided to paint my windows black and I'm in the nude. <laughs> A unique character. Look, he's, he always gives me the impression he's lonely, um, he's very independent, loves his photography, uh, loves his steam trains and all of that sort of thing, likes travelling around Australia, loves very intelligent human being. But I, I wish, you know, he had a very long career in broadcasting and hopefully there's still windows there for Clive, but uh, just so unique, such a great sense of humour, so clever. I, I'm not sure we... Always got the best out of him on radio. I wish we had, but I used to love his TV stuff, especially that Channel 7 show he had at at night time for years up against Graham Kennedy and just a very clever man. Speaking there of TV, that was never on your radar, but over the last few years you have seemed to have enjoyed being part of that. First of all, I think you were offered uh, a guest role with Fox Sports News just to talk about general sport, Mm. uh, the back page, which is an iconic um, television program 
when it comes to pay television and then more recently the game plan on Channel 10. As someone who never really coveted uh, a, t- a career in television, it, it's something that you seem to enjoy. Yeah, I tell you, when the, the opportunity came to host a game plan for, for the 10 Network, that's when I decided to embrace it and treat it as something more than just a bit of fun. And I loved it. I loved the experience of it. I'm not talking about the ego of it. I'm talking about the whole experience, about seeing how the shows came together, what the people in the crew did, how they set up the studio, the makeup girls, and the fact you had to get your hair cut every three weeks in their, their way and going through the wardrobe. and what I just love the whole experience. And you're only in there one day a week um, and you're there for, for a full day. But I used to hang out for that because it was something different. The people were wonderful. Uh, but the the grounding at Fox Sports News was terrific. I went in there once a week or thereabouts and then the back page opportunity came up. And Mike Gibson, you now the late, great Mike Gibson, um, I ran into him at his old hunting ground, the Oaks. What a surprise. <laughs> yes. Uh, it was a huge shock. And he said he had – I'm not renowned for returning phone calls from people anyway, but he had my, really? uh, my wrong number. And he said, well, why aren't you on the back page? I want you on the back page. I said, mate, if you want me on the back page, I'll be on the back page. I don't care. I'd love to be on it. Because I love him and love Billy Birmingham in particular and grew up when it started with, with Chippy, um, Fralingos and, and uh, David Hooks. Um, so that opportunity came along and I just embraced it. I loved it. But the hard thing was sitting next to Billy Birmingham, not just laughing at him the, the whole show. So that was good fun. But then the, the thing came along with the game plan with Blocker and Joel Kane and I just loved it. That was some of the best fun I've ever had in, in th- uh, for that three-year period. I was really sad when that, that went by the wayside. And ABC now obviously has gone through a lot of changes over the last uh, few years and more and more broadcasters are not just confined to radio, they have to do TV stuff as well. So how are you finding that aspect of it? I mean, they're they're using you as an an expert, um, you know, and to me you seem more excited by the fact that, okay, well, I can actually do all of this stuff for you guys, whatever you want me to do. I'm there to do it for you. Well, one thing, one thing I was told that previous regimes, who are not putting the finger at anybody, I think it was more a communal thing. There, there wasn't always someone available from the radio side if if a story broke that and the TV might need some help with something. So they asked me, would that be something I'd be prepared to do when when they employed me? I said, absolutely. I'd much rather they ask me or one of the guys I I work with than anyone else. We're there. Um, so I think it's fabulous that they do ask us. So uh, Matt and I would split up one day a week in there with, on the grandstand show on News 24 with, with Wilco, Peter Wilkins, um, and that was fun. And any other issue that happens and they ring up, even if you're on a day off, I'll go in. I, I think they all will now. It's it's good. It's a, it's a, such a big place, the ABC. I, I think to have that communication with the, with the television people, especially the newsrooms, a really big positive, and it's one of the ways we can promote what we do on radio as well. We're just about ready to wrap it up. I just want to get you to give some advice for somebody who may be looking to break into whether it be radio or TV or mainstream media of any kind. Uh, For me, uh, the greatest thing that I ever did was hitch my wagon to you as a young fellow coming in uh, at college and doing work experience for free. I just used to turn up every Friday and then you eventually said to me, start coming to the games on Saturday and Sunday. So I did that and then that was my... And lunch on Friday. Yeah, and lunch (laughs) on Friday. Um, That was my my sort of experience and entry point. Is that still something that work experience people are still encouraged to do these days or has it uh, become less and less? 
I think it has definitely become less and less. I think it's much more controlled by whatever organisation than it than it used to be. Um, but I still think you are miles in front. If you can do work experience somewhere, you are miles in front. And there's a young bloke who's doing that at the ABC. He gets some paid gigs but spends a lot of time volunteering and going out to games and calling games into a tape. It's much the same as I did. It's much the same as you did and a lot of people have done in the past. To me, that is the best way, to get yourself known, almost to the point of driving yourself, driving the people you're in touch with mad. But my advice would be try and get your foot in the door somehow. So whether that means sitting around and observing for week after week, month after month, you are miles in front of someone who's not doing that because A, you're there, B, you're learning, um, C, you're working out whether this is something you want to do or not um, and you'll much likely get an opportunity more quickly than someone who I haven't met yet or you haven't met yet. So that would definitely be a thing. And how much is knowing once you get your foot in the door, uh, something that you said early on to me, uh, is knowing your limitations mm. and knowing your what you're able to do. Because from personal experience, I had the uh, dreams of becoming a sports broadcaster or a, 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 a football caller, but I knew that deep down I probably couldn't do that. And I got a much greater excitement um, being a producer and chasing interviews and, and hounding people almost to death. Um, I found that a whole lot more exciting than you know, even reading the news, which I still do to this day, but I don't have a great love and enthusiasm for it. I have a great love and enthusiasm um, of an interview that I organised has come off Mm. and if I can, you know, write a piece of copy that sounds bang on, matched up with an audio grab that somebody else that can deliver it a whole lot better than I can, uh, I found that to be much more rewarding. So I I know what my strengths are. How important is that, is knowing what you're actually actually capable of? It's huge, you know, and I quote your example to people. I quote my wife who grew up, well, grew up, she, she ended up going to the regional areas and became a newsreader, was reading news at TUE and was very, very good at it. She'll never let me hear the tapes, but she was very good at it. Everyone raps her for it. But her, same as you, Excitement came from chasing stories, being told, no, you can't get something and getting it anyway, uh, getting something that the person next to you can't get. It's a, it's a real talent. But I, I think you're right, Ralphie. I think you've got to know your restrictions. But having said that, at 17, 18, 19, you don't know what they are. No. So once, once you learn them, if you, if you have the ability to pinpoint and think, okay, maybe I'm not going to be a footy commentator, I'm not going to be a current affairs host, but I love chasing those interviews or I'm a great writer or... I think if you've got someone there who can sort of harness you in that direction and help you along, then it's a it's a big advantage. But you've got to be self-aware about what comes naturally to you and what doesn't and not let ego get in the way. That'll take a few years to learn. That does for most people. Um, but there's a thrill in the face of an actual producer, like I've seen in you and my wife and a few others over the years, who have had the chance or have done both, broadcasting and behind the scenes. And I really admire people who can say, that bit in front of the mic's not for me, this part's for me. And they get a bigger kick than the interviewer out of what they've set up and, and if the interview goes, well, you don't want to let them down because of the hard work they've done. But, yeah, be aware of your restrictions but but embrace as much as you can to work out what they are. Don't I don't think you need to be at a rush to determine what you're not good at and what you are. I think you can allow yourself a few years to do that. But also just, just get involved, get get to know people. If you want to be in radio... 
you know, write to me, write to anybody, write to the FM people, write to the AM people to try and get in and, and observe and that's basically the best thing you can do. Through observation I end up getting a job identifying photos at Rugby League Week every Friday off the Great Ian Heads uh, when I was 15 or 16. That was my first paid job and then I had to pass down at TUE on a Saturday the uh, the latest odds to Johnny Tapp while he was on air for the two races away, that sort of stuff. And you do get a bit of money. Back then it was you know, probably about 30 bucks a day. It was huge uh, in the mid-'80s. But if, if, unless you're prepared to do all that sort of stuff, you're not going to make it. I think that's where we'll wrap it up. Thank you, Andrew. Anytime, Ralphie. Good to see you, mate. There he is, Andrew Moore from ABC Grandstand. If you really liked our chat today with Andrew, please send him a tweet and let him know you heard it. He's at Jibs Moore. So that's at G-I-B-S. M-O-O-R-E. We've also got a Twitter account here for the Media Mates podcast, which is at Media Mates AU. There's also a Facebook page, so if you can get along and like that, that'd be great. But even better still would be if you could leave a review in iTunes or a rating uh, that allows more people to learn about the show. So with a couple of great guests lined up in the next couple of weeks, uh, you don't want to miss it. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.